Hello, and uh, welcome back to Online Education Across the Atlantic. We're excited uh, to get started again with the new year, with 2024. And before we really get into the news, I hope you guys had some good time off over the holidays. Uh, You've stayed away from work. So anything exciting or exciting that there wasn't anything exciting for you too? Neil, how was your holiday? Yeah, I enjoyed a really nice two weeks off where... I didn't spend a lot of thinking about higher education and I uh, am just back into work this week um, and that break from thinking about not thinking about higher education was really good but it, I, I realized earlier today that it wasn't so good for our discussion segment of the podcast so I've had to quickly <laughs> get up to speed um, and I'm slowly easing into the year. Had a had a horrendous day of January blues yesterday for no reason other than you know just the usual um, but I, I'm feeling energized to see you guys today. You're helping me ease my way back into work. But yeah, really nice break. Thanks. Um, how about you guys? I I had a I had a good a good uh, vacation as well. I I I travelled a bit. Went to go see the in-laws in Iowa. Who doesn't want to go there? Especially in in late December, it's it's a it's a hot spot. I was elbowing people out of the way, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it was good to take some time off and to do some deeper thinking. Oh, well, that's good. Uh, we're quite busy. I mean, it like you guys, it was great uh, clearing the head a little bit. I guess I wouldn't say I stayed away from the news, but at least I didn't have deliverables and things that had to be done over the holiday that was nice. And uh, yeah, but work is fully on, fully started last week. So, you know, I've gotten over the hump already. So with that, and we'll test uh, Neil's ability to do quick reading of the news. Um, one of the things that came out was this report from UPSIA that was covered in Inside Higher Ed looking at micro-credentials. And it was, I don't know if you guys looked at the details of reports, but it was somebody really uh, went all out with the cross tabs. Like if you look at each of the things, they wanted to show every question across multiple dimensions, which I appreciate it made for interesting reading. And then the other thing I got out of it, which was not important, I didn't know that UPSIA is now UPSIA. They're no longer the, you know, the Professional and Continuing Education Association, but they're now just formal, the artists formally known as that. They're now just UPSIA. So the things that you learn. But um, in there, it's, you know, it looked at micro-credentials and I think the headline they tried to protect portray, at least in the media, was there's a lot of activity around non-credit and micro-credential work, but it's not really a strategic priority, um, and I, which is not a surprise to me. But as you dig into the report, it was hard to it was hard to pull the key messages out of the data. But definitely what I saw were things such as the budgets. You know, it's very hard for schools to make money off of it. And they have very various, you know, ad hoc business models, and they're not really in the strategy. So it sort of aligns with stuff that we talked about in an earlier episode that just this seems to be an important area, but it's definitely not taking off. And I think this report gives some insight into some of the reasons there's no business model or there's no common business model, and it's hard to make any money off of it. Any thoughts that you guys had from? seeing that report yeah i i've already 
made my disclaimer about my homework prior to this podcast, <laughs> but I have read the article, but not the report. But like, ah. there, there were a couple of things that um, it made me think about. One of the things it made me think about was the way in which universities in the UK engage with MOOC platforms in the early-ish days, in that it was this kind of trend that, there was a certain degree of budget and staffing um, like created for it, but it was an activity that was kind of done over here, um, over to one side, not that critical. Um, and that kind of thing has sort of died out here in the UK for obvious reasons. But in terms of what you were saying, Phil, around the priorities there and the kind of budgets, um, that that's what it reminded me of. Um, <clears throat> I thought another thing that kind of jumped out at me was around um, some of the percentages of providers who hadn't necessarily engaged with employers around the types of courses that they create in these kinds of segments. And I think, you know, we had a, the whole episode, didn't we, around kind of micro-credentials and we were debating around definitions. And Morgan, yours definition was really strongly aligned, if I remember correctly, that this was really employer-focused. So that was... A little bit alarming and I think in a way you know thinking bigger around that kind of thing I think you know that it, it speaks to how well universities are able to cultivate portfolios um, how well they're you know able to get insights from employers around employer focused offerings you know I think those are the bigger picture challenges that maybe this report nods to um but yeah those were my those were my main re reflections um but interested to know what you guys thought yeah i i um a, a lot of what i'm going to think about or say about the the report is is um should be thought well I, i'm thinking through a lens of what their sample size was and partly this is because i'm a I'm a survey Nazi, um, and 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 I get obsessed about these kinds of things. But they end up with 83 respondents, which is roughly two percent of of US higher education. Um, so it's a very small sample, and I wonder how much self selection there was, uh, and which 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 makes the larger question probably even more grim because I think they probably got people who we're further down the road in terms of micro credentials than than some 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 other schools might be but but yeah you know i think it's it's still a very very mixed bag and and still sort of emerging on the making money front um you know i uh, last year i had an interview with somebody who works in online marketing she's worked for opm she's worked for higher ed institutions and now she works for an association and she was just saying you know, she doesn't understand micro credentials at all because you know that they're much cheaper generally than degrees, but you still got to spend a giant amount of money marketing them unless you have a captive audience. So, like the economics aren't there. So it's bringing into focus some of the core challenges I think of 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 higher education and online education generally. So that was sort of one of my sort of takeaways, but. The other thing, and going back to that sample size there, I think they mentioned that you know the average school offers 64 micro-credentials, and I think that 
is an indicator that they've oversampled on people further down the road, because yeah. I think that's a very large number. Uh, so I think that the actual situation is even more grim in terms of ad hoc business models and, you know, it's split between this organization and that organization and so on. So I think we've still got a long way to go. Well, if we're talking small numbers, add in that OFS study or the the data analysis from the program in the UK, because I noticed that one, uh, Neil, we'll test you. This is your pop quiz <laughs> to summarize that study. But I noticed that had some very low numbers as well about taking out loans for short courses. And it was related to the micro-credentials. But it's interesting. It also had very low sample size. But I, so here's your pop quiz. Can you tell us about uh, that study in a nutshell? I, I can. Released today, I should say, as well. Uh, again, I'm getting my excuses in early on this whole podcast, aren't I? But I mean, this is um, this has kind of been in the works for a little while. So it's a short course trial um, on the back of some funding changes that are going to take place in the UK around funding, um, changing from being uh, funding for a degree, but you're able to take up funding for shorter courses and then you know, potentially bundle those together into a degree or across your lifetime, so lifelong uh, uh, loan entitlement. And so there was this kind of trial that was to assess certain things. And I, I think it's actually long been known that the demand for student finance on the back of, uh, of a trial of short courses amongst a bunch of UK universities was low. But this is kind of a, as far as I understand, a kind of culminating report on that particular trial and project um so we kind of got definitive numbers on that i mean it's an interesting one because um i think david latchman the vc of birkbeck has kind of has said you know this trial was a fiasco i think is the word that he used and birkbeck in in the uk are you know renowned for being an adult education provider so you know what can we learn from the trial? I think it ties in with what we've already discussed around the awareness of these types of things. Well, actually, share, if you don't mind, share some of the numbers that were there, like just startlingly low participation. Yeah, I mean, there were 41, I think, students that took out the loan. And yeah, I mean, it, it just... it. Low enrollments at kind of of courses, it, yeah, it just not doesn't paint a good a, a good picture. But I, I again, I think maybe to to take a similar line to Morgan, that what does a trial that on the face of it doesn't seem to have been that effective or that nuanced to tell you about this? You know, we already know that you know, micro-credentials, and if we, we could potentially call these micro-credentials, depending on our definitions, are not that well-known. And there's a challenge, not just in marketing the specific micro-credentials themselves, but actually marketing them as a product. You know, we all know degrees. They're a product that are in the in the consciousness of everybody. And I think, you know, that's that's part of the challenge, really. So it's, it's interesting to see the numbers, what we actually learn from it, I think, is 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 debatable. But it yeah, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't present the best picture. And there's been debate on the back of um, similar projections that haven't been finalised previously around. Look, is there actually a demand for this? Well, here in the U.S., you have short-term Pell uh, that is 
working their way through the system to basically give grant for low-income students to take uh, short-form programs or courses. I don't know the exact details of what they define, but certainly that OFS report or project makes you wonder if we're going to have a particularly low uptake on short-term Pells in the U.S. Everybody talks about it for a while, but do actual students care about it? That's something that we might find out fairly soon. Especially given in the current bill where they're taking away the ability to grant financial aid away from a whole bunch of schools, which presumably won't make it into the final form of the bill, but they're stripping the rights of Harvard, etc., to give financial aid. Yeah, it's a mess, um, but it'll be interesting to watch. All right, so as long as we're on the theme, a lot of times we talk about things that talk happen in the U.S. and, and first, and then they sort of hit the U.K. and other areas later. Let's go with the theme where we're taking it in a reverse direction, although in a negative story. Uh, Open University just reported a 25 million pound financial deficit. Um, and I think they'd been expecting around 10 million pound deficit, but that goes hand in hand with the uh, Coventry University deficit, which is huge. And Morgan, you wrote a little bit about this, but were you surprised? Like, what's your surprise in seeing some of these numbers coming out of UK, particularly with institutions that are heavily or strongly based on online learning? I'll interject that. I mean, the Open University is uh, an interesting one. I was I read Morgan's uh, newsletter where I think you're a big fan of the Open University, and and you know I am as well, and many of us in the UK are. You know, it's a fantastic concept. I am not overly surprised because I know that there's challenges there. There was a, a Times Higher Education article actually at the beginning, I think, of last year, which pointed out the difficulties that the university have had in terms of students completing. So there are, as much as the OU model is, you know, has a lot of positive sentiment towards it, there are challenges there. I think there's also, there's maybe like a, to just go in a slightly different direction, if you just um, humor me for a moment, there's kind of similarities when I think about Moodle you know, there's a lot of positive sentiment towards the ethos behind the company or the university, but there's also challenges around the business model and the financials. And because there's such positive sentiment towards the ethos, that can sometimes make it difficult to critique. And I am always reluctant to critique the Open University because it's a kind of a you know, we have the term national treasure here in the UK. But, you know, there are eminently challenges around recruitment of students based on greater competition, which actually isn't mentioned in this report, but I think that's a factor. You know, there's a university also in Coventry called Arden University that's been growing online student numbers in recent years. I think that university potentially presents a challenge, as do all the other universities who are developing programs. Um, so... I am, I am not totally surprised. You know, they are operating in a landscape in which there is just going to be more and more challenges. Um, and, you know, they may, they're, they're going to need to change. And they've talked about actually um, opening up a can- campus in Milton Keynes for on-campus students. So interesting example of an 
online distance university going on campus. So no, not not overly surprised. I mean, the Coventry one, I don't think really pertains strongly to online education. You know, they're a big group. They do uh, have really big student numbers, transnational students and a range of different things. Um, so my impression is that they've been quite aggressive around that kind of thing. And maybe that's left them a bit more exposed, hard, hard to hard to say really but i just think we're going to see more of this in the uk um in in the year ahead unfortunately yeah well that's part of what i took out of it was the i don't know if it's um commiseration the fact it's not just the u.s which has had more severe enrollment declines but you know the higher education environment in multiple global regions is difficult and we're seeing specific examples in the uk And then the other part is inflation. I don't think we talk about it enough, how much inflation affects the operations of universities, which clearly impacts not just online, but general, you know, general operations. And that was certainly cited as a reason for this. And it's basically, it's a difficult environment across the board in higher education. It's part of what I took out of it. So it's more of a commiseration or I'm glad we're not alone here. But I think I think Neil raises an interesting point in, in the sense that, you know, a lot of us uh, shaped our impression of the open university at a certain time when it offered the one route to a, a, a part time degree um, offered at a distance. And I started off my teaching career at the University of South Africa. Same sort of thing. You know, it was huge and a lot of people in prison, political prisoners taking courses and things like that. But but now a lot of places are getting into that line. And so there are substantial structural changes coming for those kinds of early movers, perhaps. Yeah. And I don't I don't know if you saw um, Donald Clark's post at the beginning of the year around an AI university, because he actually talked about the open university. So he he was making a call for a new similarly radical initiative that you know the open university was when it was launched uh, way back when and you know he was talking about a kind of ai university and almost a kind of a government led initiative but he was you know i mean donald is very frank so he was um he was he was frank about the open university um uh, but it yeah i think there's something in this story that is not unique to higher education as a whole, but then there's something that leads you to reflect on an institution that was a real pioneer at the time um, and, I guess, raise questions as to what their place is in a you know, 2023 higher education landscape in which more and more universities are offering online distance education. So you're also questioning our reflection, you know, the reflective attitude. Oh, open! I love open university. I love that. They're like Moodle. Great ethos. And maybe we need to look deeper. So, all right. One other quick story, and then we'll get to the focus today where we actually wanted to look forward. Like, what are the three of us looking forward to and online and ed tech stories this year? But before we get to it, uh, let's let's get the mood set with University of California and their faculty senate's ability to say, "Hey, online education does not belong here for undergraduates." And uh, it's it's been an ongoing 
situation. It's not brand new, but for people who aren't familiar, last February, the faculty senate of the system, 300,000 plus students, they basically said uh, they voted for a po- closing a policy loophole that would effectively prohibit any fully online work in the University of California. And sometimes they claim it's because of control. Sometimes they claim it's because of quality. But I have to say, if you read their actual studies and workgroup reports that led up to that decision, there's no clarity on what they mean by UC quality. So it's like they're using the name quality to effectively pull back in their cocoon and say, you can't do online education. The administrators are fighting back saying, that's not your decision. So we have an ongoing battle here. But uh, to me, it's still shocking that the people, this many people, because the vote wasn't close in the Senate, this many people in California, of all places, the home place of Silicon Valley and a lot of the innovation here, um, which can be negative as well, think that we can just ignore online education for an entire university system. They didn't say, here's extra safeguards or how we're going to do quality. They said it's not allowed. So to me, it's stunning the way this is shaking, shaping up. Maybe it's not a surprise, but it's still stunning if you ask me. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was struggling as I was reading the, the article to um, retain kind of more moderate language in my head, shall we say? Um, I just, I just, the whole thing. So British people are polite even in their heads. That's Look, what I mean. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to have that Britishness encompass all my, all my being. But um, I, I just, I mean, just came across as such a mess because, you know, an aspect of the story was also the question around governance, wasn't it, and around faculty role in all of that and you know that's a fair thing to discuss but to discuss that and to have that raised in the context of what seems like a bit of a bonkers kind of decision was also just you know added injury to insult to to me um like I, I I just I mean I I I found it staggering and it was a, I was struggling to find a rationale like and I was almost thinking to my head you know if I would make this decision and I maybe had a, had an ulter- ulterior motive how would I seek to justify this publicly you know maybe I would raise something around integrity in an AI world maybe I'd do that I mean I don't buy, I don't buy that of course I don't but I was thinking about how I might communicate effectively like why I'd taken the decision in a way that people might at least buy into but there's just nothing nothing there and it's evident that what's happened has actually caused greater ruptures that are, are to a certain extent important but needless needless to have kind of opened those kinds of worms really so i it was a depressing story for me on the whole and i i don't know what line of argument you guys tend to take but now i'm kind of at the stage where when someone raises questions about efficacy of online learning i i just don't really have time for that anymore because you know that's an old argument in my mind um we've moved on past that i i think or at least we should have done um, you know, this is about how you communicate and educate as a, at, at, at a distance 
via online as as just part of the the landscape it's not a adversarial thing it's just another form of educating people and providing access to education and so to expend my energies on debating that kind of thing versus thinking about ways in which that can be done effectively but neil neil online learning is not perfect therefore yeah. we should not do it <laughs> are you practicing for the post you're writing right now yes I'm writing a post. So I was not at all surprised by that article because I've been neck deep in that sort of bullshit argument about how we shouldn't be doing online. Um, you know, it's not perfect. Therefore, let's not do it. Um, uh, three quarters of people say it's the same or as good as, as on-campus learning. Therefore, let's report the findings of that survey as people have mixed reactions to online learning. You know, there's a lot of bogus stuff and I'm I'm sort of, you know, the social scientist in me is trying to figure out, is it just a reaction to change? Is it people wanting to go back to a world that was predictable, that was um, kind of thing? But, you know, I think a couple of things were, you know, are happening and I was having a conversation with somebody based on another post that I wrote, the one about the law schools. And, you know, I was just saying I was concerned because five out of six historically black colleges or universities that have law schools fail the, the financial value transparency thing. And so, you know, uh, that's a real concern to me. So, you know, their response and, and a really thoughtful, smart person said, well, maybe this will make them raise the funding for HBCUs. And it's just like, I wish that that was the case, but the, <laughs> I, I strongly fear that it's not going to be, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, we have to work in the world of, 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 of things. So I, I think it's, I, I really am trying to understand that. And going back to your earlier response about being polite inside your head, I am deeply, deeply disappointed in you, Neil, that you didn't start by saying, like, in response to that article, with all due respect, because there's nothing better than a British with all due respect. <laughs> I, with all I mean, due respect, that's bonkers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I think bonkers is a good British word. Um, to add in the mix, I, I was also wondering, and this kind of ties in with um, this is me being slightly flippant, but it ties in with another news story. Maybe they need to enroll a couple of AI students in an online course to gauge, you know, how effective it it is or isn't. You know, maybe that's what they what they need yeah. to do. I uh, you bring. I'll, I'll just highlight one thing you've already mentioned. Then we need to move on to sort of our what we're looking forward to. You make a really good point about governance, which is. You know, because think of it this way, if you're trying to think of motivations, if I wanted to sabotage the faculty senate, this would be one of the main approaches that I would take. Let's come up with a very uh, cloistered view of online education, not make any improvements, just say we're not going to do it. And then in very typically faculty senate manner, just say, we should study this more for a couple more years before we have to deal with it. That is the best way I can think of to pull yourself out of a governance role. Because if you're an administrator, they have to say, we can't just ignore online education. It's an important strategic choice. And the faculty senate are taking themselves out of that conversation. So I feel that they're shooting themselves in the foot or sabotaging their role which is ironic because they're arguing it's so much of this is about governance. It's just not the best way to do it. That's 
that's one of my reactions. So, so it's good to know I'm not the only one having uh, this type of reaction from that story. Um, okay, let's look forward. Uh, what we wanted to do for the second half of this episode is really say, what are the big stories that each of us are going to be looking for in 2024? And why are these stories important? And so what, what is your heads up? But uh, so each of us is going to share some thoughts and, uh, you know, we'll discuss them. But this will give a insight into the types of things that we're likely to be talking about on the podcast moving forward. So any volunteers uh, to go first? Sure, I'll go first. Um, so what am I going to be talking about? Well, it's it's a bit of a hodgepodge. There's no underlying theme, but I'm going to just go with the hodgepodge in a way. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of action around chatbots this year. So that's going to be something that I look for, you know, as, as a as a natural extension of some of that AI work, you know, we had the action around Alexa and things and then experiments with chatbots and then rolling them out and then becoming more use. But I think we'll see a sort of upstep in terms of their activity, particularly into the academic realm. So that's one thing. I think enrollment, certainly in terms of the the US, has to be a giant, giant thing. And, And so I anticipate just more looking at how places are thinking about enrollment, how they're trying to fix it, how they're trying to address that in different sort of sectors of the economy. So that's in some ways an extension of what I was thinking about this year. So it's not really a new one, but I want to go deeper into that because I think it's one of the big challenges of, similarly with micro-credentials, I want to get more into the some of the mechanics of it and, 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 and how people are doing it. So both, both the business models and the technology, a lot of what I see right now with micro-credentials sort of reminds me of the old joke of the guy who loses his keys and he's looking under the lamppost and he said, did you lose your keys there? It's like, no, but I can see here. And a lot of work around micro-credentials is the easy stuff, you know? So, um, but I think, and, and it'll be interesting to see how I do that, but, Increasingly, I come back to this issue of change, you know, that you just raised with the the California Senate and things like that. Why are places struggling with change so much and and, and what's going on? As readers of the newsletter and things will know, I have a PhD in political science. Um, When I think about my training as a graduate student, the one, you know, a lot of things were useful, but the one particularly thing that stands out, the, the one particular thing that stands out is a book we read um, about the peasantry in Indonesia um, called Weapons of the Weak, W-E-A-K. Um, so people that had no power. And it starts out with a wonderful joke, and I'm going to use a slightly colorful term in telling this joke, but it's about... When faced with abuse of power from on high, the wise man bows low to the great lord and farts quietly. Um, and it's about how people people work to stymie the system in quiet sorts of ways. They, they aren't going along with things and they're stymieing the system. That's what I, that, that makes so much sense to me in, in ed tech. You know, you've got people sort of resisting and 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 trying to not get along and and, and so a lot a lot of the lack of process is this sort of like active resistance part of why i'll never go back to a campus is because my last time on campus was spent always trying to work against my colleagues you know both in my department and outside my department who were always working at cross purposes even if something was deemed 
a priority from on high. So I, I want to try and understand what is the situation and, and, and how can we address that or make that better? So that's what I've got. It's a real, as I mentioned, a grab bag there. Well, you do have the theme of the nature of change itself and how groups react to it. And uh, considering the California Faculty Senate is a collective fart. So that's a, it's an interesting theme uh, for right there. Okay, Neil, with that set up, what are you looking forward to this year in terms of what are going to be the big stories you're keeping your eye on? Yeah, I I have a I I feel like I have a positive and a negative. So maybe I'll go with a negative first and then we'll can end on a positive. But the I guess one of the things that I'm following is I guess something we've talked about a lot, but I'm thinking about this very much in terms of the UK context, and that is the fragility of the OPM market. Um not necessarily in terms of the kind of regulatory pressures and threats that you have over there, but just that you know, there are significant company troubles, some that have come to the surface and some that are bubbling underneath the surface. And, you know, I think that's has the potential to really bubble over and affect the ambitions of various universities who are either looking to get into online or are kind of a bit further along in online. It really has the potential to stall um, and negatively affect what certain universities want to do. So, like that sounds like a horrible thing to say I'm watching for in 2024 but I you know to be honest it, it's something that concerns me about um, online education over here and I hope things do run smoothly for for people but I guess allied to that there's also um, you know a number of universities that maybe fall into the bracket of sort of post OPM so I'm interested in terms of what they do given that they're in a new chapter of their evolution there's a few that are in a kind of a state of flux i think around that kind of thing so you know that's probably more of a negative thing that i'm kind of keeping an eye on but it's really kind of in the in the in my mind for for this year and then you know on a more positive note i guess this is slightly chimes with what morgan said in that i'm really hopeful for a year in which our talk about AI is a bit more positively framed in terms of, look, how can we really leverage this in interesting ways that improve higher education? You know, we've had the kind of knee-jerk period where, you know, it's all about, is the essay dead? You know, detection tools, plagiarism. Um, Even when we talked about VLE, uh, sorry, LMS, I'm, I've just been writing something about we VLE, like VLE so, LMS. VLE is a better term, so go okay. for it. Okay, you know, even when we talked about how AI was affecting those products, we we talked about the fact that a lot of the developments were focused on on educators, basically. And so, interested, you know, can we have more around stu- a student focus? So, I'm hopeful. You know, I, me like others, I guess, got a bit tired of some of the. AI stuff and it wasn't just the volume it was also what so I'm really hopeful for more interesting experimentation a bit more of a student focus hopefully the debate about detection is um you know kicked into the long grass a little bit and I you know I nodded to that um idea that came out of Ferris State University that they announced recently around the two AI students like not perfect by any stretch of the imagination but noble in terms of it was an at least an attempt to do something interesting 
um, around AI that that you know hopefully in some way positively benefit benefits the student experience and you know the, the learning and teaching experience. So yeah, those were those were the two. One one bad, one good. How about you, Phil? Well, before I get to mine, I will ask a question on the AI front. If you sort of combine these more work with chatbots, and hopefully we're past the what Morgan's called the moral panic and get into more productive conversations, do we expect to see actual usage this year? Not just talks, talk about things, and not just very small pilots. Are we expecting that in 2024 we'll see actual usage having an impact on large numbers of students? So not just is it a positive talk about it, but will it be happening at, in greater volume? Yeah, I mean, to Morgan's point about chatbots, the the one thing that interests me, I think when Canvas announced the partnership with Khan Academy around Khan Mega, I think there was going to be a period of experimentation. What I'm really interested is... is um, Hopefully, I would I would be interested in that being rolled out more widely and then seeing actual usage. You know, I think we, you know, there's been lots of examples of chatbots used at a, a smaller scale, maybe or in particular ways. But that's an example that has the potential to reach a whole bunch of students and um, have much greater usage of those kind of things. So. I guess that probably entails people taking the handbrake off a little bit. Um, on certain things, but you'd you'd like to think that something like that might be rolled out more widely, and that's just one example, of course. But maybe that speaks to the kind of wider usage point. Sure. Any thoughts, Morgan? Before we move on, I was just about to say, Mainstay has entered the chat and says that they've been doing it with a large number of students for a while, and and I think certainly that is true. Um, I always forget what their what their previous name was, but you know, I think it was sort of broader than that, and and in some different kinds of areas. So yeah, so that's one comment. The other comment, equally snarky perhaps, but um, is look at Mr. Fancy EdTech analyst over there. He has an OPM market. I think we used to have one of those back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> We've sent it over to the UK to do a summer break. Sort of reverse colonialism. So on that note, so what am I going to be looking for? One of the biggest uh, stories, this uh, I have been known for occasionally being skeptical or negative, um, but there's a the time where I'm actually somewhat positive. Uh, so I had written about that the Department of Education in the U.S. is likely to pull back try to consolidate some of its regulatory wins and not introduce more chaos into the market. So, for example, reintroducing the third-party servicer guidance in some form or rescinding the bundled services exception that would get rid of OPM rev share models. And I had, you know, it's one of my few times I said, I just don't think that's going to happen. I think the Department of Ed is going to recognize what's happened and take a step back. Well, as soon as I had written that, I just saw a lot of signs saying I might be completely wrong on that. That's one of the main things I'll be looking for is they're trying to remake such of higher education in the U.S. Will the department pull back, as I had originally guessed, and say we need to consolidate our wins, defend against lawsuits, make small revisions and, you know, try to achieve something? Or 
will they view 2024 as let's just double down. We don't know that we're going to be here in 2025 and let's just throw everything we can out into the regulatory landscape and just see what happens. And there's arguments on either side, but I think that's one of the big stories. 2023 was defined so much in the U.S. by regulations. And it's really up to the Department of Ed if they're going to pull back or if they're just going to double down on their strategy. So watching that happen is going to be one of the main things I'm looking for. And I think we'll get a lot of insight into that by the March timeframe. You know, we'll have real clear insight. Uh, the other one, and Morgan, you already mentioned it, specifically enrollments around and the National Student Clearinghouse, because that's the most up-to-date enrollment estimates nationwide. So we'll be getting those in the April-May timeframe for spring. Then we'll be getting more in the uh, October-November timeframe for fall. We need to really look at that. And why is it important? It's because we did have an uptick in enrollment in the fall. Was that something structural that indicates that some of higher, at least in some sectors, higher education is going to come back and will get more students involved in the system and try to overcome some of our difficulties we've had for years? Or is this just something like uh, essentially pull forward effects from the COVID and it's like a minor one-time correction that we saw in the fall, but we're going to go back to significant enrollment declines. Uh, I don't know how to read it. I mean, I know my gut feel is that it's not structural and that we have big enrollment decline issues we're going to continue to be facing, and we haven't really even hit the enrollment cliff impacts broadly at this point. But if you look at the data, there were some significant increases in the fall, and it should be cause for us to question, hmm, maybe we got some of this wrong. So that is, which is the right way to interpret the enrollment gains we had in the fall. And I think we'll find out a lot by looking at the National Student Clearinghouse in the U.S. in the spring and fall moving forward. That will help set up the drivers of, you know, a lot of what we talk about, ed tech usage, online education is, um, and one way to look at it, if for summary, I don't think this is what's happening, but you have to look at the data. If there is a significant enrollment rebound in any of the sectors, will that actually reduce the demand for some of these alternative approaches and online education? Or if it goes the opposite way, is it going to say, we got existential issues, we've got to get things fixed and invest in online right now. So I'm just calling out that I know how I think, but uh, that data, we need to understand how to interpret it. And so looking at enrollment is very important. I, I was interested in in your in your hunches, Phil, because there's, there's a degree of symmetry in that we're both facing an election this year. And so the feeling in the UK is that, you know, you know, even if higher education was on fire and some people would say it is on fire, the government's going to be turning a blind eye to that and being out canvassing for the election. And so, you know, that I guess probably more of the inclination and hunch here is that the government's not going to deal with any major policy regulation things this year. But I just wondered what whether there was a similar hunch and feeling over there or it was a bit more uncertain. Well, that, what you described 
is the thinking that I had when I wrote the post saying, I think they're going to pull back is saying the rational English thing to do is to pull back and, you know, not mess up an election and try to not stir the pot anymore. So what you described was my thinking. I don't think it's broad based, um, but it certainly was behind my thought process. But quite honestly, I'm thinking I was too optimistic of that. It, and there's a lot of views that it's the opposite here, that it's going to be throw in whatever you can while you have time to do it. The other thing is also just a lot, a lot happens in higher education at the state level. And education, I was speaking to somebody at a university this week, and they were saying that the word from their state legislature is education is going to be the one number one topic in 2024. Uh, not in a good way. Um, <laughs> more like taking action against education run riot, they say. It's a red state. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's going to be a lot of, um, but it, it, it trickles down into ed tech issues as well. So it's going to be a tough year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So long and short, we are, I think we have big election impacts here in the U.S., but at least for this term, if I had to put my money on it right now, I'd say it's going to be the opposite of what you described, Neil. It's going to be not the matter of let's not stir the pot or do anything big. It's going to be let's deliberately make big changes and see the reaction. Um, so which, go ahead. You're, you're in 2024, you're even less likely to get Christmas cards from certain think tanks. Is that is that my, my interpretation? Um, maybe I'm uh, doing a disservice there. I don't know, but well, that sounds Morgan, interesting. Morgan wants to get on the disinvite list. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're more likely. We'll need to stop by your house and uh, I, have a well, I, I actually feel personally doomed because in some ways I'd much rather just write about like enrollment rates or this particular ed tech or that particular ed tech. But like, policy has been so important and I feel doomed because when I was still at Gardner we used to have to practice our symposium presentations and they were vicious like random people from the company would come and they'd rip you to shreds and there was one particular guy who at the end of my talk said he was from the government team he said what gives you the right to talk about educational policy he was serious <laughs> inside my head in Neil's in Neil's manner inside my head I thought hmm, you mean apart from the PhD and working on it for a long, long time. <laughs> but I said nothing. I just let the thing go there. But because of that, I feel doomed to spend the rest of my life working on edu on, on, on policy issues. That's my own personal, and I'll be quiet now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll end on a positive uh, note there. Uh, yes, we're going to be missing some Christmas party invitations this year or for a couple of years. But the good news is, I think that uh, for this podcast and for our respective newsletters, there's going to be a lot to cover. Like 2023 was a banner year of change and big stories. And the positive news is we're going to have plenty of material to cover for this coming year as well. So we'll, we'll leave it and try to interpret it on a positive basis. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Okay, well, with that in mind, uh, look forward to this new year and we'll start doing some of this coverage. But uh, thanks, Neil. Thanks, Morgan. It's great to see you guys again and us getting back into action this year.